0: The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Aren't you guys glad you came this morning? (laughs) What do people hope to gain from their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, and then it hurries back to where it rises again. The winds blow to the south, and then they turn to the north, and round and round they go, ever returning to their course. All the streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full, and to the place where the streams come from, well, they'll return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What's been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, here's something new? No, it's already been. Long ago, long before our time and nobody remembers the former generations and for those that are still yet to come they won't be remembered by the people that follow after them and I the teacher was king over Israel in Jerusalem and I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all the things under the heavens what a heavy burden God has laid on mankind I have seen all the things under the sun, and they are all meaningless. They are all a chasing after the wind. Whatever's crooked can't be made straight again. Whatever's lacking can't be counted. And so I said to myself, look, I've I've increased my wisdom more than anyone who's ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of knowledge and much of wisdom and I've applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and madness and folly. But I've learned that those things too are a chasing after the wind for with much wisdom comes much sorrow. With much knowledge comes much grief. And the question on all of our minds is what kind of book is this? Amen? Was there some kind of committee as they were putting the Bible together and some guy actually stood up and said, let's put that in. That's a good pick-me-up. I'm admittedly as cynical as they come, but even for me, the book of Ecclesiastes is a little bit bleak and a little bit dark at first glance. And so today, we are going to launch into a 36-week series on the book of Ecclesiastes. I am kidding, very much so. In all honesty, I've never taught out of the book of Ecclesiastes. And when Jerry asked me if I would teach this morning, uh, for some reason in my feeble mind, I thought, you know what? Ecclesiastes would be a good place to kind of launch a conversation about seasons and transitions. And then by Wednesday of this week, I'd begin to think that I had made a terrible, terrible decision. And so here we find ourselves in Ecclesiastes, and it's my fault. I'm sorry for that. Ecclesiastes is a tough book. So it's, it's a really tough book. In fact, one of the commentaries I looked at said that Ecclesiastes is a goose chase with no goose. And I agree with that. The book rambles and it repeats and it wanders and it's difficult to understand. But the more I thought about that, I thought, you know what? That actually works pretty well because that's the way life works. Life repeats and it wanders and it meanders and it's difficult to understand sometimes. In many ways, the book of Ecclesiastes is a monologue. We have all these books of the Bible. And in the majority of these books, God shows up somehow. God communicates to us somehow. He talks through a burning bush or through the wind or through a prophet or through his son. But seemingly, he doesn't really show up so much in Ecclesiastes. And so it seems to be a monologue of sorts on a, on a life that's lived to the full Now, I probably don't need to do this because I'm sure you're all better Christians than I am, and you know Ecclesiastes better than I do, but let's just do a little bit of of background. Deal? Ecclesiastes was written about a thousand years before Jesus, and most scholars tend to agree that the author of Ecclesiastes is a man named Solomon. Solomon is the son of King David. He's also the son of Bathsheba, if you know that story, right? Right? He was king over Israel. He was fabulously wealthy, more wealthy than anyone who had been around. He had more power. He had more wisdom. He had had wisdom beyond his years. He had wisdom beyond anyone's years, if we're honest. Because if we go back to the book of Kings, we see that Solomon offered a sacrifice to God. And when he did that, he asked God for wisdom. And God was pleased with that request because he didn't ask for wealth and he didn't ask for power. And so God not only gave him wisdom, he also gave him wealth and power. He was the most powerful king Israel had ever seen. Solomon also had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I cannot even imagine. Now a concubine is basically another wife, not legally, but in all other ways. And so I did the math on this just for the fun of it because why not, he could have had breakfast, lunch, and dinner with a different woman for almost a year without repeating any of those women. Pretty crazy. So Solomon, fabulously wealthy, amazingly powerful, and very wise. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, he refers to himself as history's wisest fool, who had everything under the sun. And what does he have to say to us? Meaningless. Meaningless. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. It's an interesting way to start a book, especially a book of the Bible. He uses that word, meaningless, 37 times. In a 12-chapter book, and the chapters are pretty short. 37 times he uses this word, meaningless. And let's face it, that's kind of a troubling statement. Because we all have those days, for sure, right? We have those days where we're like, this is pointless. This is ridiculous. This is not worth my time. But to go to the links to say it's utterly and completely meaningless. And Solomon even uses an exclamation point. That's a tough statement. But I think Solomon's trying to get our attention here. And I think he does a good job of it. And at this point, we might be thinking, if it's meaningless, John, can we just go to brunch, and then go home. Let's, let, let's get out of here if it's completely and utterly meaningless. But there's another phrase that Solomon uses almost with the same frequency. There's a phrase that he uses that says, under the sun or under heaven in some translations. And he uses that about 30 times, almost as much. And I think that's important for us to hear this morning because if we just focus on the meaningless, 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 without hearing under the sun or under heaven, We could just call it quits and go home. But Solomon's hinting at something here. He's hinting that the things of earth, the things under the sun, the things under heaven, lack meaning because they are separated from God. The things under heaven lack meaning because they're separated from the things of heaven. And so Solomon's giving us a little bit of a commentary on the things under the sun, the things of this earth. And so that's where he starts, with complete lack of meaning. Utterly meaningless. And like life, he repeats, and he wanders, and he meanders. And then we come to chapter 3, which is going to be our text this morning. So if you have your Bible, you can grab that. If you have your phone, you can follow along there. Or the words will be on the screen. Ch- Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Oh, and you might know this, this uh, text by heart because it's a song, right? 1965, number one hit, The Birds, Turn, Turn, Turn. So as I read through this, and that's how you know it, feel free to just burst out in song. They have great harmonies, but the theology is a little screwy. For everything, there's a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, and a time to dance. A time to throw away stones, and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek, and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away a time to tear and a time to sew a time to keep silence and a time to speak a time to love and a time to hate a time for war and a time for peace what gain have the workers from their toil I have seen the business that God has given to everyone to be busy with he has made everything suitable for its time Moreover, he has put a sense of past and future into their minds, yet they cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to be happy and enjoy themselves as long as they live. Moreover, it is God's gift that all should eat and drink and take pleasure in all their toil. I know that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done this so that all should stand in awe before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already is. And God seeks out what has gone by. For everything there is a season. Now I just want to stop here for a second and take a quick poll. Because I know that there are those in this room that love winter. I know that there are those in this room that love fall. Those that love spring. Those that love winter summer. And so I just want to do a quick poll. And by way of applause, you're going to see a season on the screen. And if, if that's your season, give us a little applause. Or if you're, if you're inclined like me, if you're from Kentucky, we call that hooting and hollering. Okay, so if you see the, the season you like, give it a little hoot or a holler or a little applause. We'll start with summer since that's the season we're still technically in. It's a beautiful Indiana summer here. Any summer people? Okay, summer people. Yeah. Summer people. What about, uh, what about winter? Do we have fans of winter? Not as, no, not as big, not summer. Yeah. Summer's in the lead so far. And then what about spring? we got spring people. Ooh, yeah. We enjoy the flowers. Yes. And what about not last, but certainly not least. What about fall? Yes. Yes. I, I fall into that category. Uh, I love fall. And have you started to notice that it's uh, it's not light outside at 10 PM anymore? I, I love that. Have you started to notice that recently, the mornings and the evenings, there's a little bit of a cool, crisp in the air, and I love that as well? <clears throat> I have. I've noticed those things, and that only means one thing, and that's fall is coming, and I could not be happier. I absolutely love fall. I love everything about it. I love that the leaves change color. I love that they fall off the trees. I love that I can squash them with my feet, and it makes funny noises. I love fall. I love apple cider. I love going apple picking. I love pumpkins, and then they come out with everything that's pumpkin-flavored, everything that's pumpkin-flavored. I love it. It couldn't be better. But there's one thing that I love about fall more than anything else, and it's this. Check this out. The postseason brings its own energy. The universe, the way it reacts to that time of the year. Well, you know, we have our shot to go to the World Series. We absolutely do. do. I'm not quite sure how that got in there. <laughs> I'm kidding, I put it there. I love fall because fall means postseason baseball, and I love that time of year. So we have these seasons in creation, right? These physical, visible, changing seasons. But we also have seasons in our lives. The creation has these ever changing seasons, and the created us has ever changing seasons. As well, And I think Solomon is trying to tell us that there will be seasons of joy, and there will be seasons of sorrow, and that there will be seasons that include both of those things. But one thing is for certain, there will be seasons. Now many of you, if you have children, have just been through a little bit of a transition and have entered into a new season of life because the kids are back in school. Right? That's a great and glorious thing, but for some of you, I know that maybe you dropped your kid off for the first time at school. They just entered into kindergarten, and you dropped them off the first day of school, and then you got home, and you realized that the house isn't quite as lively as it was, and so you've entered into a new norm, a new reality, a new season of life, or maybe for you, you just dropped your kid off at college for the first time. And you drove home, and you walked into the house, and you realize that you have an empty bedroom now. And you realize that you have a new norm, a new reality, a new season. Maybe it doesn't have anything to do with school at all. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one, or the absence of someone who once loved you. Seasons are a part of life, and we get used to the rhythms that those seasons bring, don't we? We find comfort in those rhythms of those seasons. We know that we have to leave the house at this time in order to get to soccer practice at this time. And we know we have to leave soccer practice at this time in order to get home and make dinner before everybody gets home. We know the rhythms of these seasons, whether they're good or whether they're bad. We find rhythms, and we as humans like those rhythms, and we hold on to them. But inevitably, our current season will end. Our kids will move into a new grade in school. Maybe they quit playing soccer altogether and they take up the tuba and they want to be in band and now we have to learn the rhythms of band practice and what time we have to leave the house in order to get to band practice on time and what time we have to get home. But the new rhythms, we will learn them and we like them and we hold on to them. It often feels like just when we have things figured out and we have the rhythm and we like it is when seasons start to shift. And we don't like that shift because human inclination is to hold on to the things of the past to hold on to the good old days right one of my favorite stories in scripture and i've shared this with you before but i think it, it's fitting for this morning is the story that we find in the gospel of john and one of jesus's disciples has come uh, to visit Jesus' tomb jesus has been crucified and buried and mary comes to visit the tomb of jesus And what is mary fine but a gardener and i love that john uses this imagery of a garden and a gardener because it's a complete throwback to the first creation to the garden of eden and john is hinting at a new creation with this gardener and mary begins to have a conversation with the gardener and she soon realizes that this gardener isn't any ordinary gardener this gardener is jesus And when she finds out that this is Jesus, she realizes that she runs to him and holds on to him. And Jesus says, don't hold on to me. Now, I can't help but think that Mary is running and holding on to Jesus because she thinks that things are gonna be back to the way they were. Jesus was here, he was gone, and now he's back. And we can get back to the way things were, right? We're getting the band back together. Things are gonna be the way they were. And Jesus says, No, don't hold on to me. And at first glance, it might seem a a little bit harsh that Jesus says, don't hold on to me. But I think Jesus is saying, Mary, things aren't the way they were. Things are gonna be different from now on. This is a new season. You have to be able to let go of how it was because only when you let go of how it was are you open to what is coming open to the next season. Some of you may be in a season that's so sweet you don't want it to ever end, and some of you might be in a season that, you, you, that can't end soon enough, right? There are good seasons that will come, good, beautiful seasons that we find ourselves in, but there will also be seasons that are dark, seasons that are difficult, seasons of loss, and seasons of pain. Jerry mentioned this at the All Church Retreat, which, by the way, was awesome, Right? If you weren't there, we missed you deeply. But Jerry mentioned this at the All Church Retreat. If you were to ask someone about a moment that shaped their life, you rarely get the answer, oh man, I bought that new Chevy pickup in 1985 and it changed who I was. No, you get stories about pain and stories of loss and stories of struggle because those are the seasons that shape who we are. So this morning, if you find yourself in one of those seasons, be reminded that another season will come and you are being shaped and grown and matured right now. I don't know where you are these days, what's broken down and what's beautiful in your life this season. I don't know if this is a season of sweetness or one of sadness, but I've learned and am learning that neither of those things will last forever because that's how life is. It won't be sweet forever, but it won't be bitter forever either. If everywhere you look these days, it's lonely and dark and wintry and desolate, then practice believing in springtime, because guess what? Spring always comes. It always comes. New life will come from that ground that's been cold and frozen and bare, and a new season will begin. This season will end, and something entirely new will follow it. So, wherever you find yourself, whatever season you're in, know that this season will pass. Next week, our little community here at ZPC begins a new season. We launch into a new series. We launch into fall. Our home groups start back up. And my hope and my prayer is that we realize as a community that life under the sun, life lived apart from God is meaningless and so we need to look elsewhere we need to look to God we need to look to our sisters and our brothers in Christ and we as we attempt to live out these seasons together we attempt to live out these seasons with God and with each other so that those seasons can be full of meaning and full of purpose seasons aren't easily weathered alone They're not intended to be weathered alone, and that's why we're here this morning. Jesus never guaranteed an easy life for believing in him, and it was actually quite the opposite. What he did was teach us that we're to do this thing together. We're to share in the bleak seasons as much as we are to share in the joyful seasons. We're to lean on each other and learn from each other and care for each other, to give hope to those in our family who find themselves in a season of hopelessness. To give joy to those in our family who find themselves in a season that lacks any joy at all. And I can't think of a better picture of what that community looks like than what we're about to do. Taking communion together is a picture of brokenness being redeemed. It's a picture of transitioning from one season to another another. It's a picture of us taking care of each other, of our own seasons being intertwined together. And my hope is that someone on this side of the room this morning who is in a season that is full of hope and anticipation can walk hand in hand down this aisle with someone on this room who finds themselves in a season that is completely hopeless and lost. And that someone on this side of the room who finds themselves in a season that is completely joyful and full of laughter and full of life can walk hand in hand down this aisle with someone on this side of the room who finds themselves in a place that is completely lonely. Because we have a Jesus who has come under the sun to show us that life is meaningful. We have a Jesus who's come under heaven to give us hope and to give us light when things often seem meaningless. It's a hope that there's a new season coming and that things won't always be the way they are. Amen.